What are you doing on Inishbofin? I'm holidaying with my wife. Here we were in the home stretch of the hunt for the Falcon Blanco, diving the possible wreck site. I hadn't told anyone what I was doing or when I was going to do it, but suddenly they all started coming out of the woodwork. It's absolute total coincidence that we're here. Absolutely amazing. How many times a year would you come to Inishbofin? Let's just work just once. once. Colm O'Brien, the diver who had started this whole quest, telling me a story at a party, quite literally walked into my hotel room thinking that it was his, followed a day or two later by Tom Clune, son of mysterious Mellis Clune. Then, all the way from South Africa, the boatman for the divers 50 years ago turned up too. Are you enjoying Inishbofin? Oh, yeah. I got an extra week allowed. What were the chances of them all turning up just as I was going looking for the treasure that they all had more than a passing interest in? There must be something about hunting Spanish gold that makes you excessively paranoid. All three men, as it turned out, holiday on Inishbofin every summer. And Irish summer is, of course, a very small window in the calendar. So it was more likely than unlikely that we should all run into each other. But still... What were the chances? In 1588, 26 ships of the Spanish Armada were wrecked on the Irish coast. Only six have ever been found. This is Treasure Island, the hunt for the Falcon Blanco, an RTE original podcast. So we're quite happy in our mind that we have found the wreck of the Falcon Blanca. It was very easy to see. There's nothing here. I think they found something, but then they got all secretive. It can only have come out of the water on the south side of Dublin. That's south side of that, right, yeah. Episode 6, Plot Twist. I had a long list of things, all of which needed to be crossed off before we got in the water to dive for the wreck. No, well, we, we have carried out some maybe shoreline surveys along the area of the coast because it's not quite clear exactly where it sank. Had the Underwater Archaeological Unit of the National Monument Service any preferred theory as to where the ship was? We are open to being anywhere, really, because the evidence is quite vague. Technology had come a long way since 1969. Had the area been surveyed by anybody? Every errant sound wave that's been scattered by a fish or a bit of kelp has to be cleaned out, and you need yeah. quite good computing power to do that. A visit to the Geological Survey of Ireland would, I thought, possibly shave months off the search if the sonar survey of all Irish waters, called Infomar, had already recorded Colm O'Brien's mound of ballast rock sitting in the middle of an ocean of sand. So there you go. And that's what the actual seabed looks like between Inishbofin and Avalon. It's a great place to be to be diving and to be mapping, but it can also be a tricky place to be looking for a shipwreck because there's so much, it's such a busy seabed, as, as yeah. you say, you know? Yeah. That was inconclusive. So, before we got in the water ourselves, we ran our own sonar survey over the area. Oh, no, Sandy. That's, yeah, that's Sandy. That's Sandy there, but That, too, was inconclusive. So, we ran our own magnetometer survey, basically an underwater metal detector. Take her off, take her off the yeah. back. Go down, go down to the back. But that, too, proved of little assistance. 
All we would have had were four pairs of eyes poring over as much of the seabed as we could hope to take in, until the coincidence, or not, of Colm O'Brien turning up on Inishboffin at the same time as us. For the start of your dive, you're going to go up there, all right? Up to your right, which is... Uh, what, about 200 metres east? I brought him along to try and help us cover exactly the same ground yeah. that he had in 1969. The anchor is down there, all right? The mound of stones is, say, is about here or up a little bit more. When I sat back and looked at the search area that Colm was suggesting, it was depressing because it was about the size of 20 football pitches. And in poor visibility, we were doing something that really wasn't much better than a fingertip search along the seabed. Colm, by contrast, couldn't have been more excited. I left him with my recording equipment as we dived in. I'm Colm O'Brien, Monitor 3 diver. Actually, I'm a Monitor 4, believe it or not. And I'm a member now, I'm a member on the way down, I thought about how the underwater archaeological team had spent weeks swimming over a cannon in Sligo until a superstorm in the Atlantic shifted tons of sand, revealing what had been buried since September 1588. I kneeled on the bottom and stuck my hand into the sand to see how deep it would go. Without really applying any force, it slid up to my wrist like a hot knife into butter. I was observing that I could have stuck my hand in just inches away from an anchor on either side and I wouldn't have known it. This was going to be the work of a lifetime, not just a month of Sundays, never mind a four-day dive trip. Back above sea level, having not heard from Kieran O'Ski buried somewhere in the bowels of a Spanish archive, I got an email from him with the first of a number of unexpected plot twists. We had pinned our hopes on Don Luis de Cordoba. He was, we thought, the military captain on board the Falcon Blanco when it sank. And as one of the only two members of the crew to make it back to Spain alive, we were hoping he had left a written record for posterity. But Kieran had found a document that completely upended that assumption. There was a man found called Beltran de Falto, who was travelling on, on with his company on the Black Castle. This hulk went down off the coast of Donegal. Beltran del Salto was captured by the English and transferred to prison in Drogheda. And in Drogheda, he, he writes his own report of the Armada losses in Ireland. And it is the only substantial report that we have. As the various officers and captains were transferred to Drogheda before being executed, they told young Beltran del Salto what had happened to their ships. His record is more accurate than anything compiled by the English, and it survives to this day. Don Luis de Cordoba must have been one of the prisoners that he ended up speaking to. It's important from our point of view this is that he puts Luis de Cordoba on a different ship and not on the, the Falcon Mediano. Don Luis, it would seem, was actually on board the Sierra Volante, which was shipwrecked in Mayo. 
he wasn't on the Falcon Blanco, so we had been chasing the wrong man. There had been something very close to a mutiny by some of the Armada's captains. There was a question of discipline involved, and a number of the ships were not, dis- were not obeying orders. And the Duke de Medina Sidonia decided to make an example of one of them, and he was executed. After the invasion plan had failed, Sir Francis Drake pretended to attack the retreating ships to see what they would do. The Duke of Medina Sidonia gave the order to the Spanish to engage in battle, but several ships, including the Falcon Blanco, ignored him. Basically, they disobeyed orders to, to fall back into battle formation. Most of these ships, especially the hulks, who had definitely got badly damaged, they moved forward ahead of the fleet in order to do repairs. Medina Sidonia needed to restore discipline, so the captain of one ship was court-martialed and executed. His body went travelling all over the fleet as an example. Other disobedient captains were demoted and there was a reassignment of commissions. This would then explain the appearance of a new captain on board the Falcon Blanco. Alonso Benavides. And he appears on four different ships, which makes it look like maybe he was putting out fires. So uh, he's being something of an enforcer for the Duke of Medina Sidonia. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Bad news that we had wasted time looking for Don Luis, the gentleman adventurer, but there was good news about Alonso Benavides, the enforcer. He actually survived Ireland, was not captured, and made his way back to Spain. So he was one of the fugitives. So he would have been one of the fugitives. And I think there was probably a lot more than than we think. We had spent months chasing the wrong man. Was anything going to go right for me? (laughs) The really frustrating thing about the diving was that we were so deep we could only spend 14 or 15 minutes searching the seabed on each dive, add to which the strong currents were deciding where we searched, not us. So we were being far from systematic. And it was all the same down there. Flat, sandy, monotonous, impenetrable gloom only ever five metres ahead. And the frustrating knowledge that the sand was so deep you could be swimming right over pewter plates or swords and never have known it. There was one thing that I was glad we weren't finding, though. Cannons. If there were anchors, surely there were cannons, that's logical enough. But I had a theory that Alonso Benavides had sold them all to the local O'Flaherty chieftain. The uprising in early 1589 is really a revolt of the people in the west of Connacht against Bingham's rule, really. Armada historian Hiram Morgan explained to me the significance of a rebellion by Sir Murrah O'Flaherty against the English just a few months after the Armada had reached Ireland. And he hath put them all in such pride of mind. There was a document I had come across in the archives that had a strong whiff of Alonso Benavides about it. With the hope of the coming of further supply of Spaniards, which they are made to believe... The ever-resourceful Benavides had exchanged his munitions for food and water with the O'Flaherty's, and several months later, an alarmed English officer wrote back to Dublin, basically saying, Holy crap, somebody's given the O'Flaherty's cannons. Sir Murrah, Knight Chief of the O'Flaherty's, hath of late, with open forces, 
showed himself bearing a certain quantity of shot and powder with other munition gotten together. And to paraphrase the alarmed English soldier even further, he goes on to add, someone has only gone and taught the bloody Irish how to fight like a proper army. And one of the Spaniards in particular seems to have marshaled the Irish forces in and drilled them into a line uh, and they fire volleys of shot, and this is a modern a way of fighting. Thanks to Alonso Benavides. More exciting, though, when I added the information from these documents to everything else that I had uncovered, it created a sketchy but reasonably reliable picture of the Falcon Blanco's last days. We know the ship and crew put into shore three days before the storm and it seems exchanges its cannon and powder for food, water and repair materials with the O'Flaherty's. Then when the storm hits, the ship is sheltering in the lee of Inish Boffin, but it's destroyed on the treacherous rocks surrounding Davalon. Knowing that they will be killed by the English, the stranded Spaniards have no choice but to throw their lot in with the Irish and become swords for hire. Now, in this case, the Spaniards who had stayed around really didn't want to be there. And another document that went into this in more detail says that the Spaniards simply uh, were more or less forced to fight for the Irish in this occasion because uh, they were afraid that if they went anywhere near English castles or English forces, that they themselves would be executed. Alonso Benavides wasn't mentioned by name as the man who had brought Spanish military tactics to the west of Ireland. Nobody is. But a process of elimination suggests it has to be him. I was on a bit of a roll with solving some of the riddles that had been there from the start. But the longer and harder I looked at the contradictions between the 1969 divers and their boatman, Simon Avis, the less solvable it seemed. I think they found something, but then they got all secretive. We weren't hiding anything from Simon Avis, I can guarantee no. that. Simon was certain that the divers' silence spelled secrecy. They were adamant that they were hiding nothing, and I couldn't square the circle. But there was, as it turned out, a really simple explanation. You just start from the beginning and tell me what it is that you remember. Well, back to Marauder and it was Day's boat. First start off the hotel, Day's hotel. What was the boat called? Northern Ranger. Someone on Inishboffin told me that I needed to talk to Andrew Concannon, who was the skipper of a trawler called the Northern Ranger in 1969. They couldn't remember why I needed to speak to him, just that I should. It turns out that it was Andrew who took the divers out on the trip that they had discovered the anchor on, not Simon Avis. That was all by the Evelyn. Yeah. Well, who was on the trip? Colum as a number one, anywho. And there was no attempt to hide anything by the divers. As I suspected, as soon as their heads had popped up above the surface of the water, they were talking about the anchor. At last, they were all chatting about the sinking, so on, you know. Pile of, pile of stones, there's a bed, supposed to be the bellies to the boat, there's a sand and all around the rest of the area. And they told you all about this? There was yeah, no, yeah. There was no hiding? Oh, no, 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 no hiding, no hiding. No. But better still, 
he could remember the marks, the visual cross-references of features on the shore that he had taken where the divers had surfaced. Well, uh, one of them is Evelyn, anyway. And the other one is Clonamore Strand. This was where we should have been diving all along. Clear behind. Clear behind. We descended where Colm O'Brien assured us we would be dropping onto the ballast rock and we took a line to emerge just above the point where Andrew Cannon said that the divers had seen the anchor. But there was something off. We should have been looking at a sandy, flat, featureless space with only the mound of ballast rock visible. But there were large and small rocks scattered everywhere. Heading eastwards to where the anchor should have been, the seabed was also different to the divers' descriptions from 50 years ago. We were diving from the right marks, but the seabed was wrong or it had changed. What had happened only dawned on us very slowly, and it was a rude jolt from the escapism of 16th century treasure hunting back to 21st century realities. The climate-changed fueled storms of March 2014, the tale of Hurricane Ophelia in 2017, and last year's storms had battered the west of Ireland. What had been in 1969 a tiny sliver of a gap between Davalon and Ox Islands had now opened up into a 30-metre wide channel. Part of the strand was opened out, a mouth is that opened out. At first, I was really frustrated, but the more I thought about it, the more fitting it felt. Schoolboy dreams of stumbled upon wealth at the bottom of the sea should properly be spoiled by the clear and present crises of the grown-up world. But the Falcon Blanco still had one almighty surprise up its sleeve. Simon, are you still there? You hear me? Yes, I'm here. I'm yeah. sorry about that. After the dive expedition, I was filling in Simon Avis. Uh, I can hear you clearly. That was my end. Anyway, the long and the short of it is that the anchor is probably buried under sand, but the, the ballast rock is almost certainly consumed or subsumed now by rocks that have been torn off the side of Davalon and pulled out uh, into that channel. Yeah, definitely. Simon had made a discovery of his own, though, one that he was saving up for that perfect Columbo moment just as I was about to hang up on him. All right, Simon, take care. Now, just one last question. Yeah. And are you descended from Sir George? From who? Sir George Boucher. I've only gone back six generations. Which county? Limerick. Yeah, you are descended from him. I mean, you know who he was, do you? No, I don't. No, not a clue. Oh, well, this will really get you worked up. The entire focus of my research in the archives had become about trying to find someone who had survived the wreck and made it home to give a written account of where the ship had sunk. That was obviously made much harder thanks to the English killing so many of the sailors. If more had survived, my job would have been infinitely easier. The people who got the instructions to execute and to torture the crew by Sir, from Sir Fitzwilliam, instructions were issued to Sir Thomas Norris, Sir George Boucher and Sir 
Sir George Carew. And Sir George Boucher eventually owned, set up in Limerick. And they had a castle there. So I suggest you go and have a look because you're much closer to this than you think. Are you kidding me? No, that's serious. Lord Deputy William Fitzwilliam, a notoriously greedy and unscrupulous old rogue, gave an order or commission to three men on the 22nd of September 1588 to take all hulls of ships, stores, treasure, etc. into your hands and to apprehend and execute all Spaniards found there of what quality soever. And just in case there be any doubt about the spirit of the commission, the last line reads, torture may be used in prosecuting this inquiry. One of those men that received this order was a Sir George Boucher. My family name had only been Boucher Hayes for six generations. So Sir George Boucher, slaughterer of Spanish soldiers and sailors, was lurking somewhere 11 generations further back in my Limerick family tree. Anyway, your, your great, 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 whatever it is, grandfather, got that order and he was one of the executioners. Sir George Boucher was given Castle Guard Castle and lands in Capamore in Limerick in the same year as the Armada, 1588, presumably as a reward for killing so many Spaniards so efficiently. So there may well have been a Boucher Hayes who got his hands on Armada gold. He just lived 17 generations ago. The hunt for this ship and its survivors isn't over the dive window for this summer in that part of the Atlantic is closing. So that is where, for the time being, this chapter of the hunt for the Falcon Blanco must rest too. Reporting, Philip Boucher Hayes. Sound engineer for the series, Brendan Russell. Thanks to support divers Catherine Brosnan, Mick Crowley and Rory Golden, boatman Aidan Day and Andrew Murray from the Dune Moor on Inish Boffin. And a special thanks to the people of the island for throwing their doors and their memories open to me. If you have any information on the Falcon Blanco or anything that suggests that I'm not related to Sir George Boucher, please email me falconblanco at rte.ie or join the conversation on social media hashtag falconblanco